Early one Sunday morning in November of 2019, while consuming my obligatory two pieces of toast and flipping through the channels to find something more edifying than the latest sports reports and a rerun of Hazel, I stumbled upon a program with a preacher speaking on the end times. After a while, he said something regarding the sequence of events that gave me pause. And I thought, is that right? Did he? Is that really the way it is? I didn't know. I wasn't sure. And immediately I was convicted by my ignorance. I read the Bible through from beginning to end almost every year. I've researched and answered questions on these topics for members of our class. I've even taught the Thessalonian letters, which require addressing at least some of the details of the parousia. Yet on that particular Sunday morning, I still wasn't sure whether that TV preacher was was or was not correct. My next thought was, well, there's no better way to learn it than to teach it. So here we are. First, let me point out what this class will not be. It will not be an exhaustive verse-by-verse examination of the Revelation, Daniel, Christ's Word, and the Gospel accounts, Thessalonians, at all. This will not be that kind of a study. We'll look at those passages, of course. It will not be an exhaustive comparison of the different interpretations of what will happen in the end. These will be mentioned, but only in passing. Now, no doubt, for every one of us, there are certain subjects we must repeatedly relearn, and as we age, that seems to happen a little more often than before. We hear it, we read it, we may even write it down. But inevitably, inevitably, the occasion arises when we can't remember that which we thought we knew as that Sunday morning. Hence the purpose of this class, which is to present a detailed chronology of the end times, including for each participant a series of printed charts which will begin in the third session. Oh, I shouldn't have given that away. I should have held that in my pocket. I won't remember. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) You're getting old too, Dean. Similar to what we did for an earlier study of Christ in the Old Testament, I will be producing and handing out a number of charts and informational sheets that can be used in class. So they will be reference for class. But also, if the individual so desires, once we're done, there should be a pretty good stack of them. Once we're done, if you like, if you desire it, you can hand them back to me. I'll bind them. So that we'll cover in the back, so that you'll have a nice handy booklet. So the next time you hear a TV preacher say something you think may be wrong, you can say, ah, page three. You'll have a handy reference. 
This class is going to be unapologetically based on a pre-tribulational or dispensational, premillennial interpretation of God's Word regarding the end times. For the 50 cent words, I've given you the screen. This is the approach I grew up with. It's the official position of this church, a happy convergence. This is what I believe. This is what this church believes. But it's not the only interpretation, of course, of what the Bible has to say about such things. There are highly respected scholars, commentators, and preachers, devout men of God, all, who hold to different positions. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, puts well how we should consider and respond to such disagreements. This is what Grudem says. It is important to affirm the genuine evangelical standing of those who have differing positions on these questions. Evangelicals who hold, who hold to these various positions all agree that Scripture is inerrant and they have a commitment to believe whatever is taught by Scripture. Their differences concern the interpretation of various passages relating to these events, but their differences on these matters should be seen as matters of secondary importance, not as differences over primary doctrinal matters. That's Wayne Grudem. Who, by the way, does not subscribe to this position on the end times? His position is that of classic or historic premillennialism, which we'll deal with later in, an, in a subsequent session, which does not include a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. He believes that the church will go through the rapture. Tribulation, sorry. She's also the one who keeps me on track. Uh, we will. We'll discuss those when we get to them, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess I could give a 50 cents. Just 50 cents. Just. I won't be giving anything away, right? Tribulation, we believe, happens after the rapture. Rapture, the tribulation, seven-year seven period, three and a half years, middle, following the great tribulation. The term great tribulation is, refers to the last, the second three and a half years. During that time, it is literally hell on earth. Tribulation indeed. There will be lots of tribulating. Christ returns at the end of the tribulation for the millennium, a thousand-year period, where he comes in judgment. Everyone who reads their Bible and those who don't read their Bible and listen to common media and see Christ as some simpering flower child, loving everything there is, they're going to be really shocked when he comes back. Because that is not who is coming back. He is coming in judgment, in wrath, to set things right. 
to judge the nations, to rule the nations. Is that 50 cents worth? I don't want to give it all away, you know. Okay. Well, you get me going and I get going. Now, where was I? So, for example, getting back to Grudem and historic premillennialism. One camp may believe that Christ will return for his church after the tribulation. while another camp believes he will do so before the tribulation. A few even say in the middle of the tribulation, that Christ comes in the middle of the tribulation, just before the great tribulation. But all agree that Christ will return for his church and in righteous judgment of the world. They just disagree on the order, which is usually of secondary importance. Most of the differences, most of the respectable differences among uh, these various interpretations tend to center around the tribulation or the millennium in that area. I will be referencing in brief outline the differences between the various positions on the end times, but will not be covering in depth the arguments for or against uh, all of them. The purpose of this class, I tell you up front, is to lay out and document for easy reference the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial sequence of events for the end times. No No matter one's position regarding the order of the eschaton, or whether much of it is to be understood as literal or just mystical and figurative, The books of Revelation and Daniel are famously difficult to interpret. It's important for us to remember that all positions have weak and logically vulnerable aspects. All positions. That is, there is no one absolutely foolproof from beginning to end interpretation of the eschaton. Each Every one of them has its, but what about moments? Including the one I will be teaching. There are moments where you say, well, but but what about this passage over here that says this? We'll try to deal with those, but not, there isn't one of them that doesn't have some moments when we're scratching our head, thinking, "Mm -hmm, I'm just not sure. Now, let's begin at the beginning. The eschaton, when does it begin? While it's common to mark the beginning of the end times with the rapture, a lot of people do that, Christ's return in the clouds to bring home the dead in Christ as well as the living church, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17. The writer to the Hebrews, for one, marks the start of the end times with the first advent of Christ Jesus. Let's look at that. Hebrews chapter 1. Now, who has that? We need a mic. There we go. Hebrews 1, 
Let's read verses 1 to 2, one of my favorite passages. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. That word translated last does not mean in these recent days. It does not mean in these current days. But is the key word for this study, eschaton in the Greek, which means the furthest point, the uttermost, final. Way out there. The apostles Peter in 1 Peter 1.20 and John agree. Let's look at the John, 1 John passage. 1 John It comes before Revelation, doesn't it? First John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. Now, that, again... Last, same word, eschaton. It is the last hour. So in the first century, we have at least two writers so far that saying, we're in those last days. It started. Finally, the Apostle Peter began his eloquent sermon on the day of Pentecost by associating the disciples speaking in foreign tongues with Joel's prophecy about the eschaton. Turn please to Acts chapter 2. Yeah, we need, we need a mic down here, please. Acts chapter 2. And let's begin with verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. So Peter, just a short time after the ascension of Christ, Peter was saying as much, You've been waiting for Joel's prophecy to be fulfilled? Well, now it has been. We are now in the last days. We approach this study from a heavenly perspective that the beginning of the end, as it were, actually took place in a stable in Bethlehem. That started everything. Christ coming to earth in the flesh started everything. Thus, we are 
in a technical sense, already in the eschaton. The last things were inaugurated by Christ's first parousia, which means, just means coming or presence. His presence among us, that's what is meant by parousia. Beyond that, however, we begin with the perspective that all of God's Word, from Genesis through Revelation, is about Christ Jesus, the Son of God, and His kingdom. This was where I started two years ago. In my notes, in my workbook, it occurred to me that this is all about Not only is God's Word about Christ from beginning to end, but the narrative, you know, we like to think of it all, if it's Christ, then it's salvation. Of course, we, that's, for the time being, that's the most important to us. That makes sense, doesn't it? We have our salvation in Christ. He redeemed us. He gave His life for us. We rejoice in that. We treasure it. It's precious to us. But when you step back and squint and look at the Bible as a forest rather than the individual trees, the narrative is all about Christ coming into His kingdom. And that happens in the eschaton. He has to come to earth first in the flesh for that to start. For the, you know, He he has to die. Spirit can't be nailed to a cross. You have to be flesh. So that's what starts the whole thing. And when you read the passages that pertain to the last days, the last things, you're struck. It's all about Christ Jesus. It's all about Him coming into His power. It's all about Him ruling, finally ruling from His throne. It's all about Him. So, in many ways, this is a study of Christ Jesus. Who He is really going to be in the end. This is an important concept. To grasp the magnitude of the last things, we must understand that the plan for it was laid out in eternity past. And that the first mention of of it to man occurs as early as the third chapter of Genesis. Turn please to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, let's read verses 14 to 15. Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Many refer to verse 15 as the fifth gospel, or more accurately, the first gospel. 
For here we have the first mention of the Savior. In that word, let's see, in your translation it was offspring. Uh, I use the NASB. Seed, singular. Zara in the Hebrew. Here we have the prophecy that sets up the cosmic battle. Enmity, Iba. Hostility, hatred between Satan and Christ Jesus. That's the other thing that the final days of the last things are all about. Christ and Satan doing battle. The operative verb here is more often than not translated bruise, which really doesn't sound so bad, does it? We all get bruised. But the Hebrew word is shuf, which here means to break, smite in pieces, crush, to greatly injure or wound. Now why most of our versions continue to do, say, bruise, I have no idea. I don't know the answer to that. But it, the NIVs come closest with, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That's good. That's, that's good. It shows a difference between the two. Just as important as the verb is the location of each wound. The Son of God will receive His fatal blow at the cross. But since He will be raised from the grave, it will be as if He was only wounded on the heel. If you're wounded on the heel, it's not fatal. It just hurts like the dickens. Satan, however, will have his head crushed. That'll do it. That's fatal. Gone. Done. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Don't, Isla, don't get me started. This is supposed to be serious. Yes. Satan will have his head crushed and there will be no recovery from that. Even before his demise, the prophecy says that he will henceforth, he will be henceforth cursed, and dust he will eat all the days of his life. In the Old Testament, eating dust carries the meaning of total, absolute defeat. Notice how the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 65, blow the dust off Isaiah. Let's read that, Isaiah 65. Notice how the prophet Isaiah describes the serpents. Not Satan in this context. Not Satan, but a snake. His status during even the glory days of the new heavens and new earth. uh, Isaiah 65. Let's read verse 17 and then read verse 25. For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. And verse 25 is, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, 
and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So once everything has been neutralized, even then, the snake is sucking up dust. From the beginning days of creation, Satan's fate was sealed. Christ will have the ultimate victory over his ancient nemesis when Satan is destroyed forever in the lake of fire during the last, the very last things. Now let me <clears throat> explain my use of the word destroyed. There's really no good English word to describe what happens to Satan and his minions. About as close as we can get is destroyed, but that's really not very accurate. Because it, it really gets back to resurrection. There are two kinds of resurrections. Believers have one resurrection. They will be raised to glorified bodies suitable for heaven, suitable for an eternity with God. We have to be changed to do that. Unbelievers, those who rebel against Christ, will be raised as well. They will be raised to new bodies. They will be raised to bodies suitable for an eternity in fire. So Satan will be utterly neutered. I'm throwing open the thesaurus here trying to come up with the right word because he will be now for eternity in the lake of fire, but he will not be dead. We say destroyed, we think gone, poof, gone, nothing, nothing left. No, not true. Satan, as well as unbelievers, will spend eternity in their new bodies. <clears throat> bodies that will not be consumed by fire so that they will for eternity suffer the flames of the lake of fire. Close as we can get to that is destroyed. The Apostle Paul speaks of this flow of history focused on Christ in a slightly different way in his letter to the Ephesian church. Let me read Ephesians 1, 9-10 from NIV. And He, that is God, made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That's what the last things are all about. Christ on His throne. He's on the throne now advocating for us. The right hand of God. He is enthroned, but He's not ruling yet. There will come a day when He will rule from the throne on earth. 
One thing Paul brings out here in Ephesians is that the entire economy of the universe, not just religion, not just salvation, but everything, everything in heaven and on earth will one day be under the authority of just one head, Christ Jesus. From the very beginning of time itself, it has all been about Him. Only He, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb that was slain, is worthy and able to open the seven-sealed book. Christ is the one who will sit in judgment of the nations. He is the one who will separate the goats from the sheep. He will be the one to reign for 1,000 years on earth after the tribulation. And He is the one to sit on the throne of David forever and ever. See, He's not on the throne of David yet. He will be, but not yet. The story of the last things is the story of the victorious Messiah coming into His own. To put it in base human terms, because that's the best we can do, it's what He was born to. All of this, all of this from Genesis on is all about Christ ruling. The story was written by the Godhead before time even began. Turn finally, please, to Isaiah. Isaiah 46, chapter 46. I'll begin at verse 8. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. He's God, and He will see that it will happen. Before time was even created, the last things were already mapped out. And here's the ending. I'll give it away. Christ wins. God does not just know what will happen in the future. He's designed the whole thing from beginning to end. At the outset of this earth's history, before even that. During those earliest days when he walked the garden path with Adam, he had already mapped out the events of the eschaton. Beginning with the Son of God being incarnated in Bethlehem so that he could die on a cross for the sins of men. Because the first man would ultimately fall out of fellowship with his maker. The Son of God, second member of the Godhead, 
would be incarnated on earth. In humility and obedience, he would take on the flesh of man, and as a man, he would suffer and die as a helpless lamb. His ministry to mankind would be the one of love and grace, mercy and forgiveness. Thank God. Even in that, however, he did not suffer fools, offering just a glimpse of what he would one day reveal to the universe. I love those passages where he turns on the Pharisees. (laughs) You whitewashed tombs. He called it. There will come a day when Christ will no longer show himself as the meek and humble lamb, but now a fierce, ruling king who will go to war against unrighteousness and the unholy ministrations of a fallen world, ruling it with a rod of iron. Psalm 2.9 Those who think they're getting away with it, those who died thinking, "Ah, I got away with it. No, nobody gets away with it. There's a, a moment during the last things that I keep thinking about. I hope I'm there to see it. I mean, I hope the church gets to witness this. It's one of the resurrections. At the end of the millennium, Christ, it's the moment of the great white throne of judgment. I think, I don't have my book ready yet, so I think that's when it happens. And all the dead, everyone, all the dead, the unbelievers are raised from the grave. And they're raised with new bodies. Hey, this is great. This is good stuff. Finally, out of the grave. They come before the throne. They come before Christ. And he says, lake of fire. Like that. They are raised from the dead thinking, oh, well, this is much better than the grave. And they end up in the lake of fire in moments. Wow. That's the same Christ who loved enough to die for us. Same one. And he won't bat an eye. You rejected me, I reject you. Lake of fire. Now, the beauty and poetic symmetry of God's word is seen in that this this creation begins and ends with dwellings that are righteous and pure, perfect and sinless. Have you ever thought about that before? It begins and it ends perfect. His word begins in Eden where God lived and walked with the first man and woman. He intended the earth from the beginning to be an idyllic paradise for his creation. But sin entered into that perfect dwelling and the bulk of his word is the story of God's plan and efforts to restore his sinless creation. 
both the land and its people. The land grows or groans right along with us. By the next to the last chapter in God's word, this is accomplished. In Revelation 21, John describes a perfect, sinless world. A new heaven and a new earth, and no longer any sea. That is, no longer any sin or evil gone. There will be a new Jerusalem, and even better, this is good. Quote, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them. And they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. People like to say, well, if I'm good, I'll go to heaven. Well, first off, goodness doesn't have anything to do with it. But secondly, our eternity is not in heaven. Our eternity is on earth. You talk about grace. You talk about love. Almighty God who created the universe, created us, created everything there is. Now you would think He would say, I've done all that for you, now you come up to Me. No. In the end, when everything's been sorted out, in the end, God comes down to live with us. He lives with us. God and His Son will dwell on earth with man. Oh, it'll be a better earth. He can't live here now. Everything has to be glorified. If you're going to be around God, you've got to be glorified. You have to have a new body. You have to have a new earth. Everything has to be pure and spotless. Then He'll show up. But He chooses to live with us. Even though the purpose of this class is to define and document a timeline for the last things, we must never get so lost in the details of sequence, the minutia of eschatology, that we miss the breathtaking wonder and glory of this story. And the clear truth that the Son of God came into this world as flesh so that He might die for the sins of all those who would place their trust their eternity, their eschaton in Him. Now I've left some time for any questions, any thoughts you might want to have. Got about five minutes. Or we can go home to pot roast. Anything else? Any questions, thoughts, complaints? Uh oh.
I was wondering if if it's uh, a question you can answer uh, regard you you used the the phrase uh, dispensational a while ago. Is there some simple way that you can explain what you mean when you say that? I'll give you the fifty cent version now. Uh, we will deal with that more in our next class in detail, probably more detail than you want to know. Dispensationalism is one of those things where you dip your toe in the water and suddenly you can't breathe because you're just flooded. There's just so much to it. I didn't even know what it meant a year ago. Uh, I believed it, but there are churches that are dispensationalists. I mean, it's preached every Sunday from the pulpit. The 50-cent version of dispensationalism is that there's two key factors. I'm not going to burden you with the full scope of it. For that, Linda, would you dig that out? Um, that book. There's a book in our library. If you want to dig into dispensationalism, the pastor has this in our bookstore. Um, this, this digests it down and really explains it. It's very easy reading. Oh, give the title. Yeah, right. Uh, dispensationalism, Essential Beliefs and Common Myths, Revised and Updated, Michael J. Vlack. I see. I, I quote Vlack, Vlack in the cl- next class, uh, not knowing that he had that book. Um, he's a good source for that. But for our purpose, the dispensationalism. There's the classic definition of dispens is that time, the economy of God. Has, is divided into different dispensations. That's probably the least important aspect of dispensationalism. Who cares, right? I happen to think that God just sees it as it is. It's man that has divvied it up. But the point of that is that God deals with different people in different ways at different times. So there was the first covenant, and then there's the new covenant. There's the law. There's what the the Mosaic law, where God says you have to do this. You have to live this way. And then there's Christ who says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. My commandments. Not Moses' commandments. My commandments. So, God, that's one thing. Probably the most important aspect of dispensationalism for this class is, has to do with Israel. Dispensationalists believe, from God's Word, that Israel, the church, is not the new Israel. The church and Israel are separate. Where God deals with one, one way, He deals with the other, another way. And this comes into play during the millennium. The, because the millennium is all about Israel. No, millennium. It might be. No? There's a period of time during the end times. <laughs> My helpmeet. Tribulation, yeah. yeah see. I, I got to get that book done. I've got to get it. I, I, I got to. Boy. It's that magic number 70. Isn't that what does it? I mean... Before you hit 70, 
hey, you're good. I can remember things. 70, I'm dead. My brain is dead. That's why I write it all down. Don't worry. It isn't up to my memory. I write it all down. I'm not Pastor Jeremy. I don't speak off the cuff. Now, okay. During the tribulation or the millennium, (laughs) one or the other, it's all about Israel. Yeah, yeah, tribulation. The church is taken out and it's all about Israel. And there are times during the end times, during the last things, where Israel is the one working with Christ. And Israel will be saved as Israel. We're all saved by faith. We're all saved by faith in Christ as the Messiah. But those Jews who believe by faith in Christ before it's too late, they remain Israel. They do not become the church. And the church does not replace Israel. So that, in a nutshell, is where how uh, that deals with the last things in this class. Anything else? Most of your questions about that topic should be answered next week. If that isn't enough, that book is, I highly recommend it. Uh, it's very well said. You can read it in a short period of time. have no idea what it costs. that it? Right. Yeah. Oh, yes, ma'am. Oh, just, um, how does one um, get on your email list? Uh, you just tell me, you just give me your email. And that's okay. all you need to do, and I'll send you the notes. Okay. Um, I'll come up after class and get Okay. There. That's fine. Is that it? Father, we thank you for this time in your word. That too is a gift from you. It's all from you. It has nothing to do with us. We thank you for being our God, for loving us enough to leave us your word and your spirit. We need both to understand all this. May you be praised because of this time spent in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.